Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 64, Discover Yourself as a Perspective-Taking Being. Diane Mushal Hamilton, Zen Sensei and Big Mind Lineage Holder, joins us to discuss her personal story on the path of awakening. We also touch in on the importance that the work of integral philosopher Ken Wilber has had on her teaching. This is part one of a two-part series. Do you love this show? Support Falling Fruit and advertise your product or service here. For more details, visit fallingfruit.tv slash sponsorship. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. We're here again, like every week, with some cool guests. One guest is Kelly Sosan Bearer, and you might have remembered her from Geeks of the Roundtable, McZen Double Satori with Cheese episode, classic. <laughs> she is a Zen student of Gimpo Roshi, and she's the managing editor of Integral Spirituality Channel for Integral Life. So we're glad to have you back, Kelly. Thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, and we also have today with us Diane Musho Hamilton. She mm -hmm. is a dual lineage holder, which is kind of interesting. It's the first dual lineage I've ever heard of in the uh, Buddhist tradition, and that's with Kempo Roshi, who has authorized her to teach Big Mind. That was a few years ago, yeah, Diane? Yes, that was quite a few years ago. Okay, so you've been doing the Big Mind process as a teacher for a while, and then mm -hmm. recently you uh, received Dharma transmission, and you became an official sensei in the uh, zen tradition as well Correct. so That's you're right. and you're the only dual lineage holder in his tradition yeah well not exactly i mean my zumi roshi who was genpo roshi's teacher actually had dharma transmission in three traditions mm. he was a lineage holder in the rinzai also in the soto and then in one other smaller school so he'd received transmission so really you're quad lineage holder <laughs> by <laughs> indirectly that's pretty impressive <laughs> i'm also aqua what am i She's fully transmitted and integral by Ken Wilber. Oh, cool. So, so okay, I don't even know what the uh, the <laughs> prefix for We're nine not is. But <laughs> <laughs> so basically you have a really rich background in the Zen tradition and also in this technique called the big mind process. Mm -hmm. right. And also you have a familiarity with Ken Wilber and his, mm -hmm. uh, a deep familiarity with his work. Mm -hmm. And you're helping teach uh, and lead seminars, I understand. And mm -hmm. I've actually been to one with you and participated in the big mind process yeah, with I you. Remember. Yeah, I yeah. remember. Yeah, it was great. And I figured we'd kick it off by asking Diane some questions, mostly about her relationship to Ken Wilber's integral theory and, and how it impacts being a teacher and how she sees it impacting actual living practice of mm -hmm. Buddhist practice and Buddhist sure. meditation. So, mm -hmm. so the first question I thought would be good is, is just kind of what's your background and how did you end up a one, maybe a little bit background with, uh, with your meditation practice and then how do you ended up getting connected with Ken Wilber and the Integral Institute? Yeah, well, I, I think I was probably born a spiritual seeker. I mean, I had spiritual experiences, maybe you might even call them awakening experiences at a young age, and was always something of a seeker. And then in my teens, I experienced the, the death of seven friends of mine who were very close. And I was 17 years old at that time. I just lost interest in everything except what, what in Zen we call the great matter of life and death. The fact that, we, that we're born and we live a version of a human life and then we die, sometimes unexpectedly and sometimes prematurely. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be born and to die? So I think, you know, for me, that became the imperative that my life really 
became focused around, and I started to study Western philosophy, mm. psychology, but then just very organically was led to the teachings of the East and particularly of Buddhism. And I, I became a student of Chogyam Trungpa's in the mid eighties mm. and started studying meditation when I was about 24 years old. Mm. And for me, because I have, I was raised in a, in the Mormon religion, but I didn't have much of a faith was way too cognitive, too questioning, too intellectual in a certain way. And for mm. whatever reason, the way Buddhism construes the teaching and how it works spiritually just appealed to my particular mind. Mm. So it was just like a fish mm. into water. I was just released into this practice and this tradition really early. So how did you move from Chagyam Trungpa's community to finally big mind and, and going back to, I guess, the heart of the Mormon yeah. uh, religion in Utah? Yeah. Well, I, I was here actually at the very end of Chogyam Trungpa's life mm. and studied from about 1983 to 1986 here in Boulder. And he died. I graduated from Naropa Institute in, I think, December of 86. And I believe that Chogim Trungpa died in the spring of 87. So I left at just the time he died. So there was a kind of a natural break. You know, there was that ensuing controversy surrounding his Dharma heir. Mm -hmm. And because of that scandal and that difficulty, I just very naturally kind of faded from, from practicing within this tradition. But after that, I did go to Asia and I still studied in the Kagyu tradition with some uh, teachers who were in Asia for a while after I left Boulder. Oh, neat. And gradually, you know, Trungpa Rinpoche said something to me that, not to me personally, but in his teaching that I remembered and that stuck with me, which was he was always pointing out the basic groundlessness of our situation, how we're always relating to reference points to secure our sense of self and our sense of identity and our sense of safety in the world. But if you really look at the situation clearly, actually there's nothing really holding us up. He took us always right into that place. And he said, even the Dharma will not sustain you in moments. There'll be moments where you're in absolute utter free fall. And that's really in some ways how my life felt after that and after I left here. And because of what he had said, I think I just allowed my Buddhist practice and my relationship to Dharma practice to dissolve for a period of time. Even though I continued sitting, I wasn't studying formally. Mm. And there was just a point where I knew that I needed to find another teacher and made a decision that it didn't matter to me necessarily the tradition. What mattered to me is that they were an authentic lineage holder mm. recognized as a master. And it turned out that Genpa Roshi lived around the corner and had his, his practice and study center just around the corner from where I was living in Salt Lake City. Mm. So that's how that happened. Cool. So you just kind of bopped on over there yeah. and sat down. I was like, yeah. this dude's Seems like he's for real. Yeah, yeah. And I also knew, and I don't, I don't know if this is your experience or people who might be listening, but I was so engaged by the study and the practice of Buddhism that going through that period where in a certain way I, I had to let go of it and emancipate, and then I returned to it, I had a sense that when I did, that it was going to consume me again. So, and it did. All of a sudden, everything became Japanese. And Roshi and I actually have this joke about how, you know, I, he sounded like a Japanese teacher. Mm -hmm. Only he's basically a Jewish-American mm -hmm. athlete from Long Beach, California. But he's in a Zen robe and he's speaking like a Japanese master. And even his, his language and his voice sounded Japanese. And I remember leaving thinking, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure about mm. whether I want to enter into that again in a... You know, because it requires a certain ability to navigate culture in a way that you're comfortable with. Right. It's not easy necessarily. Right. And it's quite masculine. Right. 
Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Um, there's so many Trungpa students that went from Tibetan Buddhism to Zen. And actually, I'm, we got a book from Vajradhatu Publications called The Skull and the Teacup mm-hmm. that was written about this whole interesting relationship. And I'm just wondering maybe what your experience is. I mean, it seems like what you would say, the cultural differences, people usually stick with one because it's like to go to another one. It's like, oh, I got to get used to this whole new culture and ways of doing things. But it seems fairly easy for so many Trungpa students. I just see that a lot mm-hmm. compared with any other teacher. Well, it's, it's, again, if we just think about it culturally for a minute, one of the distinguishing characteristics of Trungpa Rinpoche's teaching, one is that he was actually quite cross-culturally adept. Mm. I've heard stories where they predicted that he would leave Tibet to go teach the yellow hairs, as I heard it. You know, that he had, he had a proclivity for understanding the Western mind and for presenting Dharma mm. in a way that Westerners really understood. Mm-hmm. And also, he was very attracted to Zen and had quite a powerful relationship to Suzuki Roshi and also to Maizumi Roshi. And so a lot of, when I look back and see how I was trained by Trungpa, mainly in his instruction in sitting meditation, in Oriyoki, in his uses of the Gong, the Heart Sutra, it's actually mm. very much like the Zen school. So, mm. so Trungpa was actually teaching Zen, and one of my understandings is that mm. he grounded his students in sitting because he felt, as I understand it, that the American mind just really needed to simplify mm. and to empty out. So the fundamental practice of sitting was really key in his transmission of Dharma. Mm. And his aesthetic appreciation of the Japanese school shows up even now in the way his shrine rooms are mm-hmm. right you know, created right that makes total sense yeah. mm-hmm. so how long were you have you been studying then in the, the kanzian zen center with Gempo? i first came to the center in 1996 i think i received i was married by roshi in 1998 there to my current husband i think i received jukai in about 2000 i was ordained as a monk in 2003 and i received dharma transmission in 2006 so it's been about a total of of 10 years of practice. Well, not now, more than that. Do you help me with the math, Kelly? <laughs> well, you've been practicing since you were like, what, 20? Yeah, I've been practicing since I was in my early 20s. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And but then, I've been practicing with Roshi probably about 12 years now. Right, so about a dozen years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I remember when we were at the uh, integral practice seminar, we were kind of sitting in a circle and and you had mentioned that that you had been doing quite a bit of sitting. I mean, it wasn't just like mm-hmm. you went there every once in a while. Like you, you spent quite a bit of time at the center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I compared to different practice centers, there can be a kind of question around how much people sit. You know, I'm not, I'm not a mega meditator, but I'm a serious meditator. And right. I, what, what I mean by that is consistent. Right. And then I'm at the Zendo at least three, four, five days a week, at least for an hour, sometimes for two or three hours. Sometimes if we're in session or if we're in a, Big Mind month long, I might be there six or seven hours. So it just depends. There's a point, I think, and people probably notice this in their own practice, but for me, sitting meditation is so much a part of my life that I often spontaneously sit. Like mm-hmm. I'll be on an airplane, I'm just sitting. I don't even intend to, but suddenly I'll notice <laughs> that I've been sitting in a, you know, kind of a meditative place for a couple of hours. And it's nice to sit on airplanes. It's mm-hmm. nice to sit at home. It's nice to sit when you're waiting for someone. It's nice to sit when you're in traffic. I sat through most of my undergraduate degrees. Totally <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Sorry, Naropa. Um, yeah. So, and at some point in the past few years, you got connected up with author Ken Wilbur, who we, right. we mentioned in the beginning. And, yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that and how, how that has impacted you. And 
Well, it was, it, again, you know, there, there's always a, a kind of an interesting story to tell, but basically I had really the teachings in our school, in the Maizumi Roshi's lineage, in the White Plumber, in the Soto Zen school, the teachings on submission and the way in which you give yourself to the teacher, you give yourself to the teaching, you give yourself to the vehicle of the lineage, the way you give yourself over. Like, it was very interesting because I struggled with that a lot. I'm an independent thinker. I'm an American. I'm a woman who finds herself at odds to some degree with the forms at times. So, you know, like all of us, I think it's hard to give ourselves over. What is it we're giving up? What is it we think we're receiving? And that struggle to relax and to actually surrender something, some attachment to your version of who you are, to something larger than you, a teacher who has certain realization and certain qualities, and you're giving yourself over. It's not easy for us. It's often a fight. But interestingly enough, I really felt like I had done that, like I had actually managed to somehow give myself to this practice lineage. Mm -hmm. It seemed like almost simultaneous to that recognition I met Ken. All of a sudden, I really gave myself over to Zen practice. And within a week, I'd met Ken and the whole thing flowered again in an entirely different direction that I wouldn't have expected. And I think we met for the first time in either 2003 or early 2004. And I had such a strong reciprocity with those teachings, with that framework, with that worldview, that I just immediately started teaching with and for II at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some ways, you know, I consider myself a student of Ken's, Mm. definitely. And I just find his... If Roshi has developed the big mind to give people an experience of that which is beyond ordinary conceptions of self, which is unnameable and graspable but durable, Ken's done the same thing only theoretically, Mm. which is kind of an interesting thing. They're both created their respective big mind processes. Mm -hmm. Roshi's is experiential and immediate, and Ken's is conceptual, and he's basically asking you or inviting you or encouraging you and sometimes demanding if you're intellectually lazy, that you keep expanding your perspective, that you keep turning your experience of reality, your experience of self, your experience of other, of what's subjective, of what's subjective, and that you find, you actually discover yourself as a perspective-taking being, and that enlightenment itself is always realized through the life and experience of a human being. So Ken would say that enlightenment itself takes on a perspective, Mm. which is very interesting. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And in part because some of the tendencies we often see in the Buddhist communities is kind of more towards anti-intellectual. Like mm-hmm. somehow if you get too caught up in the intellect, and mm-hmm. I think there's obviously truth to this, but mm-hmm. but it's clearly not what you're saying. If mm-hmm. you get too caught up in the intellect, you, you can't uh, realize enlightenment. Right. And But what you're saying, uh, it sounds a little different. So I was wondering if I could kind of ask you to say, say a little more about that. Like what what is it about Ken's big, you know, his his framework or his theories that that actually help us take more perspectives? And what does that mean even to take more perspectives? Well, let's make the distinction first between Zen practice that points you directly to your experience. But even the the pointing to is based on a view. It's mm. based on a system, a conceptual system. And that system, that framework in Buddhist practice supports you in having an experience of yourself beyond concepts and not at all limited by those. And I think the imp- really important teaching is not to mistake conceptual maps for reality. Mm. And Ken has really been very precise in his teaching that his work is a map mm-hmm. of the territory, but it's not the territory. And we all know what that means. We know how helpful it is 
to negotiate experience or negotiate territory where there's a map or where there's some kind of guideposts that you can actually use and reference as opposed to just wandering blindly. So it really has to do with just understanding the relationship of concept to experience mm. and not being trapped by it. So the anti-intellectualism is actually a, what is it? it it's a, perversion's a strong word, but I think it's a perversion actually of, of the teaching. Mm. And it's, you know, it, people I think often have been tied up a lot in their versions of reality, their conceptual ideas, their imaginings. And then there's this sudden freedom that comes from realizing you are not those things. In fact, reality itself and your mind is so vast by comparison that there's almost a grief at the fact that you've been lost in your small thinking concepts for so long that, you know, you somehow build an aversion to thinking and a certain kind of even intellectual laziness can set in. But you know from the guests that you've had on your program, like Alan Wallace, that people who are trained in the tradition and who are really polished in terms of the conceptual view of Buddhism, that Buddhism is an extremely rich tradition mm. from the Indian, um, East Asian, Chinese, and Zen, that it's an extremely rich, and then, you know, Southeast Asia tradition. Mm -hmm. The three yanas are vast and beautiful and intellectually pristine, and some people realize themselves precisely through concepts. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what would you say uh, some of the key concepts that Ken's identified on his large map are the most key concepts in terms of Buddhist practice, like what are the things he's pointed to that are really helpful? Well, he, I mean, his, his fundamental insight that resulted, I think, in sex ecology and spirituality, and I look to Kelly Sosan Bear to help me with this, the fundamental insight that resulted in that work was that language by its nature frames three fundamental perspectives that we're participating in all the time and moving through, and yet we don't necessarily have a metaposition in relationship, which is subject, I, Mm. right? You, second person, mm -hmm. and it, third person object. Mm -hmm. And that we're creating those reference points of subject, object, and naturally rotating them. And then in the second, there's a communication, there's a you that's present. Well, when you suddenly start to see those three perspectives at work, whether it's in Buddhist practice or whether it's in your life, and you start really, I mean, in a way, subtle, the word subtle gen in, in Japanese means it's so close to you that you don't see it. And the image that's used often is of a black lacquer ball in a black lacquer box. Well, that's actually how subtle, it's so subtle, it's just obvious that we take it for granted. You know, it doesn't seem that significant, but in fact, it's extremely significant because all systems of inquiry can fit into those three perspectives. Zen is fundamentally concerned with dissolving the subject-object separation mm. into a kind of radical first-person experience. Mm. So you're saying Zen has to do with that first perspective you yeah. mentioned of I. Yes. Most, and this is, this is what Ken's outlined as the three faces of spirit, mm. the second person has to do with the exchange with other, that without the exchange, the other would be an object. So whether it's a tree or whether it's your lover or whether it's God, without the communication, the other is an object. But within the communication, there's both separation and communion in the second person. And he calls it the miracle of we because it's magic, because it's both. You're both separate and together in second person. And in the third person, there is the subject-object split mm. so that you can actually see yourself apart from, you can witness and be in awe of that which is not you. And you can study it, 
and look at its laws and its patterns and the way science has done that with the phenomenal world. Right, right. But basically, there isn't the closing that gap changes the game entirely. And I, I, Ken's the only person I know that's articulated that as clearly. And for me, that's been a really radical insight. We had an experience one time. Here's a, just a very practical example of what, how those perspectives are useful. So we were at uh, the Integral Institute. We were on a staff retreat. And somebody complained about the sound from the computers and basically said that they were finding it hard to work in. And in a practice setting, in a moment like that, you're often asked to look at your own mind. What is the sound? What relationship are you making to the sound? What is the sound to you? You're sort of thrown back on yourself, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of first-person reference point. Work with your own mind in relationship to that. In the West, we tend to do everything from a third-person perspective, so we immediately try to fix it in the environment. Well, in this case, that isn't what happened. What happened is everybody started to laugh and told this person, like, you know, work with it. So because we were practicing integral, I said, well, that's... She ultimately has the most power in that realm in that first person interior realm Mm -hmm. but by negating her concern you just actually kind of ruined the second person experience she didn't feel related with she didn't feel seen she felt put down so the relationship was compromised and if there had been an easy way to address it in objective reality it was also overlooked Mm. so an integral perspective would be to say look at your own mind see the innate quality of your own freedom and how to be free in relationship to what, what is arising that's irritating. But an integral perspective would say, well, actually, why don't you practice rotating perspectives and see what happens if you address it in all three of those dimensions. Yeah, and it, I was just thinking as you're, as you're sharing that, that real-world example, how the Buddha and Ken's made this correlation in his own writing. I mean, it, it's no accident he had three jewels, you know, the three jewels yeah. of Buddha, Dharma. Precisely. Buddha, Sangha, and Dharma. That's right. I mean, you can see his Buddha eye. Yes. Sangha's we and Dharma's it, like yes. the teachings. The teachings, absolutely. Yeah. Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Yep. And as we like to say, you know, we love the Sangha, it's the people we struggle with. <laughs> 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 it's always, practice is always much harder in second person than when you're sitting in the Zendo. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an interesting point about Zen being a kind of more first person practice of looking into your own mind and mm-hmm. introspecting. Mm-hmm. Um, because like you said, that, that helps with regards to things coming in, mm-hmm. but how does it, does it tell us much about how to relate to each other in sanghas or, you know, with other people? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I, I guess for, to some degree it has to, but I wonder are there other, I mean, is Ken's insight here pointing that there are other skills we need to develop as, uh, spiritual practitioners that are not completely covered by the, what he calls the first person introspective mm-hmm. practices. It's, it's an ongoing this question is like a koan. It's mm. something really to be lived, I believe. And I've had disagreements with significant dis- disagreements with people over this question because I think the implicit assumption is that when you realize your true nature and you see yourself as absolutely inextricably linked to everything else that's arising and there's a natural flowering of compassion, that what comes out of that is just a sort of basic kindness, a basic respect and basic kindness in terms of how you relate with the world. But I think that that potential is not necessarily always realized. And I think learning something as simple as listening skills and learning to taste when ego clinging arises in a communication and when it's relaxing, that you can actually give additional instruction that is not contained in the tradition that is really helpful to people. And I I actually do a lot of that. And And I'm noticing around the country that a lot of 
you know, a lot of Buddhist sanghas are doing communication skills training and doing group circles and working on the practice of sangha in addition to sitting practice. And, you know, my own personal belief is I think it's helpful. Now, the flip is it, and this is an important point. Ken and I actually in the in this long interview that he and I did together recently, we talked about this, which is the very, but the slippery piece is that those skills, those relational skills, those interpersonal skills, those that understanding is actually not going to ultimately cure the source of suffering. Right. And the Buddha said, and he said, I, I teach one thing and one thing only, and that is liberation from suffering. Right. So that what happens is that when we enter into this territory where we're, we're going to practice our relational skills and get better at it, a subtle kind of hope sets in that somehow it's that practice that's going to relieve my suffering. And then what you find is that you run into all the problems of trying to perfect your communication and negotiation skills and getting along with others. And that, that, that secret hope has, hasn't quite been seen accurately for how it snuck in. So there's still birth, old age, sickness, and death, which is what the Buddha's teachings were very specifically designed to address. And no amount of listening skill is going to help you at the moment that you are dying. We spoke to a teacher uh, named Gregory Kramer, and he's teaching his practice called Inside yeah, Dialogue. Yeah, I've actually been with oh, in one of his so you, workshops. Oh, yeah. nice, nice. So so you have a direct firsthand experience with yeah, that. And he, I do. He was just talking about the importance of just what you're saying, mm-hmm. that there, there is this experience of interpersonal suffering, mm-hmm. that, that if we bring the contemplative first-person mind to, and we see it as it's arising in our relationships, that mm-hmm. actually... Uh, and you're doing that in some formal way actually alleviates or cuts through a lot of the suffering yeah. that happens interpersonally. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, Ken's basic framework is is pointing to that too mm-hmm. in some other way. And it seems like the third person perspective has something to do with studying or, or learning or uh, knowing more about the world somehow mm-hmm. and our relationship to it. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could, if you have anything else to, to add to that. Well, what I would add to that is that you know, that if you look at the 10 ox herding pictures or the eight ox herding pictures, there's a realization and you might say the recognition of Buddha nature, the recognition of all that is. And then in the depictions, there's an empty circle and then it disappears. But the path is not complete until you return to the marketplace with open hands. So enlightenment Encountering the absolute is not yet enlightenment, but that enlightenment, the realization has to be embodied, manifested, and actually come to fruition Mm. in your relationship to the world. And the world, whether you're experiencing the world as me or whether you're experiencing the world as it, to have compassion in relationship to how you're interacting with the world and with others. Like I'm talking about a profound compassion that comes from a recognition of our interdependent situation, that we're not fundamentally, ultimately separate, that it's all highly conditioned, but that when I see into the nature of it, I'm going to respond very differently. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. 
This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.